This week, Reverend Jesse Jackson. We are humane people. We fight for justice and fairness. The college athlete and outspoken civil rights activist speaks candidly about his recent Parkinson's diagnosis. I could not get out of a chair because it, it, it was so intense. And the death of his colleague, Dr. King. So I saw blood just everywhere. Knock, knocked him against the back of the hotel door. Plus, lasting memories of his poor upbringing. We didn't develop a complex about it, Graham, because we were conditioned in that way. Something within me said we could change our condition. Answers for his many critics. A group of people surrounding Mr. Jackson have profited from his civil justice involvement, and I think that's disturbing. That's a compliment. And thoughts on late friend Muhammad Ali and the enduring link between sports and protests. He'll go down history one of the great freedom fighters of our time. All that's coming up next, right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. Wanted to talk to you first about the Parkinson's. Um, what made you first realize something might be off? Well, while walking, a couple of times I fell. The doctor said, sounds suspicious. And so uh, they checked it out with a real specialist. They saw signs of Parkinson's and uh, I could not believe it at first. Maybe a year, I really didn't give it the attention it deserved because unlike a cut or a bruise, which you can detect, progress kind of grows and diminishes you. I could not get up out of a chair because it, it, it was so intense. And then I couldn't comb my hair, left or right hand, and couldn't shave. And so you find yourself deteriorating real fast. And so when I put all that together, I said, look here, we got to go to work. That first year when you said you weren't really giving it the attention it deserved, what does that mean? Well, I could not feel its immediate impact. So I was not on the kind of medical regimen I'm on now. I take medicine four times a day, kind of dopamine. It's not cured, but it can alter it. Plus you have physical therapy and occupational therapy and speech therapy. So they tell you to do big stretches, exaggerate your movements and walk with and then, of course, what I'm doing now, in addition to that kind of exercise, is the muscle development and fitness. What do you think you learned from your biological dad having had it? I was with him one day, we were out talking, and he had uh, peanuts on his lip. And my son said, Grandpa, he didn't feel it. And I've had the same experience, Grandpa. Because there's a danger of not feeling extremities and stuff like that. So it, it requires a reorientation to oneself, taking care of oneself, one's body again, learning, and something learning how to walk again, how to stretch again, how to talk again, how to exaggerate steps and movements, and not, not give in to this thing. So, wanted to talk to you uh, about sports. Um, you mentioned, you know, your biological dad. He was also a really successful boxer was, back in the day. What do you know about his boxing career? K.O. Uh, Robinson, right? Yeah, he lost, I think, one fight. I never, I never saw him fight. He was so tall and muscular. Clearly, he was a fighter. He had quite a, a reputation as a fighter. You know, athletics have meant so much 
to oppress people across the years. And in our case, uh, biblically, the role of, of David and Goliath, the role of Samson, the Philistines, the huge story. So these guys became national leaders. They've been blessed by God with these gifts and this charisma. Jack Johnson beat Tom Jeffers, became the hero of the black world. And then, of course, Joe Lewis and Max Smellett. No white American could beat the guy. Had to reach back to the bowels of the ghetto and bring out the brown bomber, Joe Lewis. The second fight, he demolished him in a minute and 30 seconds of the first round or something. Bigger than life hero, Joe Lewis. I remember when I preached his funeral, and I had uh, gotten to know him. I went, and the night he was in the castle, I rubbed his fist. I just cried and cried because on his fist rode the feelings of so many. Uh, then, of course, Jackie Robinson. He endured the hardships of it. He became victorious. He, he, he didn't fail. He was work of the year and bad three, four, to seven. Uh, Jackie was a stand-up guy. Before Rosa Parks sat down at 55, he sat down at 41. He wouldn't go to the back of a military bus on the base. He defied the bus laws, even in 1941, thereabout. Um, his breaking in had a lot to do with uh, uh, deracializing America. I think what made it the most difficult for him, he is a guy at the bat with his teammates hoping he wouldn't get a hit, needing him to get a hit. He's a guy, if somebody throws it at him, never was out the dugout to defend him. Against those odds, he prevailed. How about the best time you ever had with him? Well, maybe when my, my dad, who was himself a, a triple-A baseball player, Charles Jackson, I, I was a bad boy for Jack Robinson and for Don Lucum. That was a big thrill, you know what I mean? I to touch him, you know, look at him. The other part of it was that Jackie had this awesome sense of dignity. And uh, he saw himself as a pacemaker and a pace setter for, for, for America. Muhammad Ali actually once lived not too far from your offices well, here in Chicago. Right around the corner. How did you get to know him? One, he was known in his realm as a box. I was known in my realm as a civil rights press. We had the kind of mutual admiration. He lost three years of his, heart of his career, somewhere like, like Michael Jordan did, really, and came back to be the world champion. So he became a, because of his style and his flair, his boxing ability, his dancing in the ring, his talk, his principal position against the world. He gave up money. It was not an idle protest. He gave up. He was literally broke. I think Joe Frazier loaned him some money to get him back into the ring and offer him a fight so they both could make some money. So Ali, Ali really did not do a short circuit to glory beyond the ring. You were quite the athlete yourself in high school and college. You made the varsity team in football your freshman year of high school. You were also um, quite the baseball player as well. How good of a pitcher were you? Well, the older I get, the better I was. <laughs> <laughs> At least you admit it. There you go. <laughs> yeah, well, I, uh, I could play. My, my father, Charles Jackson, was a great baseball player. And these days, he would, he would have made the pros, the majors. He was a triple-A baseball player. And when people like Jackie Robinson or Don Newcomb or Junior Gilliam would come south, he would be a part of the all-star team that traveled. 
So I got a chance to see him and some of the some of the best guys play. And uh, as I grew, I could I could throw with accuracy. But I had a sense that well, I enjoyed baseball the most. Football was what scholarships were. How talented a quarterback were you? Best I'd ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was well coached, you know, and uh, we had good teams. I enjoyed sports. If we were not for athletics, I could not have gone to college. No? My parents couldn't afford to send me to college. The, I never remember them being out of debt. And so football gave me a chance to go to school, and I'm ever grateful. The athletics are all so concerned about how the athletes have been exploited in such a different kind of way. You could go from picking cotton balls to picking footballs. Picking cotton wasn't so bad if you could own the cotton sack and the cotton patch, and you could wear your cotton and mill it and sell it and turn it into textiles vertically. If you can only stay at the bottom picking cotton, it's a bad deal. Athletics, if we can only play football, basketball, baseball, fill up the stadium. Many schools have 25 to 30 athletic programs, tennis and badminton and track and all. Sports that do not generate capital, great sports, but the football team and basketball team generates money for the whole athletic department. And often those sports are heavily played by African Americans not get the financial consideration that, that they deserve. I think your mom, when she was 16 years old, before uh, she had you, she actually had five college music scholarship uh, offers. She was a soloist at church. Why was it, though, after she had you, she was almost exiled from the church? Well, because of the uh, moral standards of our church community. They frowned upon babies being born out of wedlock. And when mother became pregnant, was so prominent and so well known, it became an issue. So finally, she had she had to leave the choir, bring me down front, to alter and apologize for my birth. She, she was accepted, received again, and back at a special place in the church for, for, for which she never left. But that was the, uh, the, the the moral standards of that day. I think you guys had a $9 budget when you would go to the grocery store to buy groceries. Um, what would happen sometimes when you'd get to the front register? Oh, when my father, every week he'd come on, we would go to buy groceries. Maybe his limit would be $9 or $8.50 or something. And I could count better than he could count it. And, if, and I was in fifth grade. And I would be trying, if I miscalculated, and we were like nine sixty rather than eight eighty. Even though we shopped at the grocery store all the time, it was not like bring the money back or get it next week. We had to run that line and take the product out and put it back on the shelf. It was humiliating and um, no one to be in that position. I, I understand the first house you lived in with your mom and grandma, you guys had wallpaper up more to protect from the wind coming into the house. They had to, had to put uh, or a ceiling, they call it, around the doors so as to cut the wind. And wallpaper, wallpaper, not so much for decoration, but to break the wind. We didn't develop a complex about it, Graham, because we were conditioned in that way. But something within me said we could change our condition. Really? And that we shouldn't live, live this way. 
And uh, so you were conscious of it at the time that that we, wasn't the standard you wanted. We would go to the white people's house and look at what they had. We just didn't have it. I, I read this story somewhere, and your biological dad um, got a new house, and you would, on occasion, like enviously stand outside on the street and look in. He moved to a very nice, he was very entrepreneurial, very industrial, so a very nice house on the other side of town. Uh, White House, big picture window and, and uh, central air and heating. A stream ran through his yard. He would garden the flowers or stuff like that. And I would just go and look. I was hesitant to approach him. Particularly my stepmom was there. I'd, I'd, I'd internalized anxiety about that. Why wouldn't you approach? The children are sensitive to being affirmed or rejected or not getting in trouble. I mean, it's, it's a very complicated situation. Your half-brother uh, Noah had, had said, at times, though, you, you felt rejected. Um, how so? Somebody, your blood cries out to you. But, but it, was, it, it, it did not have deep indentations because I was so loved by my mother and my stepfather. My stepfather adopted me legally when I was 12. I was Jesse Burns, my grandmother's name. I became Jesse Jackson. I'm, that's my third name. I'm adopted. So I never, was, I never was fatherless. I never was homeless to that extent. I mean, other children had worse conditions, frankly, and they were less loved. So you were a student at the Chicago Theological Seminary School. And what I thought was kind of funny about this is obviously you've had this wildly successful career. Um, but in college, you actually were struggling in seminary school. How true is that? I was struggling because my attention span was challenged by the movement. I left Greensboro. I had been jailed twice. I had been marching, and I was into social activism. I was inclined to go to law school or seminary, and Dr. Sam Proctor convinced me to go to seminary to try it for a year. And I was torn because I was, I'm in Chicago in seminary, and my boys are downtown marching in South Alabama, and like, matter of fact. The Sunday that the march took place in Selma, I was in school. I just came to the library and I looked on television and saw the, the beating. I couldn't take it anymore. And I said to my classmates, if Jesus is real, we've got to go to Alabama. Uh, the cross is not just something to wear, something to bear. And I challenged that sense of theological commitment. And three cars of us drove from Chicago to uh, Selma, Alabama. That's where I really met Dr. King for the first time in an engaging sense. I was hired shortly thereafter. I worked with him from 65 to when he was killed in 68. March 7, 1965, um, you know, you see uh, what's going on, Bloody Sunday, March through Selma. You're driving down the next day, and despite uh, eventually missing uh, your second child's uh, birth, you get your first real meeting with Martin Luther King Jr. What's discussed and why are you pitching him on bringing the movement to Chicago? He came to Chicago, not at my insistence. It was a big debate, should, he, should you bring the movement north? Should you stay south? And they finally decided to come to Chicago. We began to organize ministers. 
and in organizing those medicines, we gave him a base when he got here, a base for fair housing marches. He, he was searching for a way to arouse the consciousness of people. And the, and the open housing marches became the final act of his life, really. I think it was five days before his assassination, uh, you end up getting into a heated argument of sorts. And fellow activist Andy Young says, you still remember that, that the last substantive conversation um, the two of you had was some sort of argument. It was not the last substantive conversation. We, we were often, he encouraged vigorous debate and staff meetings. He, he didn't, we were not docile, just waiting to go. And the, the context of it was, he had said when the meeting opened, I have had a migraine headache for three days, and I don't know if I can go any further. I'm being turned on. He was being attacked by leaders. He was maybe 62% in the black, and 62% in the negative among blacks when he was killed. 52% in the by black and 72% by whites in, in the negative. Blacks were attacking him for taking attention away from civil rights for the war. His point was, money for healing at home is going to killing abroad. You can't separate, it's the same budget, war or peace. And he said, maybe I, maybe I should just quit, give up, stop. And he said, Dr. King, don't talk that way. It was such a solemn thing. And he said, well, maybe we can turn the minds into a plus to go on to, a, go on to Memphis and on to Washington to have sit-ins to end the war in Vietnam. He left, went back home. We were, went to our several places and uh, we were together in Memphis that Tuesday. When Dr. King was assassinated, what do you remember seeing and what do you remember happening? I remember the day before how excited we were about the prospects of leaving that going on to Washington. We came across the courtyard about six o'clock. Pow! We hit him and severed his tie. So I saw his blood just everywhere. Knock, knocked him against the back of the hotel door. I remember somebody, somebody saying, get low, get low, because whoever it was, if they had sprayed the bullets, sprayed the bullets. They could have hit three or four of us in the courtyard. We got, there's a picture of Andy Young and somebody, we pointed at that picture is, we were saying the police are coming to drone guns. The guns, the shot that came from that way, go, go, with, go the way the, the shot came from. That's what that picture was all about. I hate to replay that moment. He died so young, so innocent, such moral authority. It hurts to think about it, talk about it. What do you remember thinking at the time as all of this is going on? I remember we were just saying that we cannot let one bullet kill a movement. We're going on to Washington, and we did. Most of us are not spending time in Memphis at the trial. We spent our time in Washington fighting in the war and fight for poverty to be ended. What did you say on the phone to Mrs. King? It was hard to get it out. Dr. King has been shot, I think, I think in the shoulder. I couldn't see it in the neck. I'm sure within eight or 10 minutes, she got a call from one of the wire services he had been killed. And that, that drama took us in many ways to where we are today. Why was it important to you in the days that followed that, or the next day to wear the blood-stained sweater? My anger. Anger? My anger. I was upset. I was, I mean, we were not, blood's not going to stop us. We're going to fight back. It was, it was, a, it was a, a badge of honor.
James Earl Ray, who was convicted of killing Dr. King. Why have you said before you believe he didn't act alone? He, he didn't have the money. The motive of the organization skills to do it. Uh, a lone killer getting out of town at six o'clock, getting into Mississippi and all that, end up in London. He couldn't have done that by himself. What do you think happened? Government was very involved. You think so? To what extent do you think J. Edgar Hoover played a role in? I have no idea. That, that, that gets in too much detail, except I know this guy couldn't do it by himself. And there was a very public hatred for Dr. King expressed by FBI and the government. I wanted to ask you about your uh, push organization. Um, started off as push, now the Rainbow Push uh, starts in uh, 1971. I think Christmas morning you uh, started it. Your, your wife once said those early days, the house was almost like a, a commune. Describe the scene. Well, we all stayed with each other. We, we were close that way, kind of dormitory style, you know. We, we met on Christmas Day. Uh, Jim Brown was there and Bill Russell and others came around the country to support the efforts to continue using the economic boycotts as a lever to get blacks on boards and C-suites and professional services and the like, which we're still doing today. We're on Wall Street in Silicon Valley. We began that 50 years ago. The next iteration of your organization, long after you one day pass, where would you like to see Rainbow Push? Position to defend, protect, and gain civil rights, locally and globally. Whether it's a crisis in Africa or Central America or Europe, whether there's a chance of war and there should be peace, we should be committed to that always. Uh, voter registration and participation in the political process, but put a renewed focus on the private sector. I mean, politics is where the money is, the private sector is where the wealth is. Using our, we, we vote reluctantly every two, four, six years. We vote with a dollar every day. We use that leverage to get companies to open up opportunities. What do you have to do to best position your organization to have success after you? Well, by having staffs capable of, of, of doing work. We have a senior vice president. We have ministers around the nation who, who invest in this struggle. There's no doubt in my mind they can carry it on. After all, this is God's work. This is not just my assignment. This is God's work. God will take care of his own. The organization over the years has received a, a fair share of criticism. Um, how about the piece of criticism that's bothered you the most? People want us to do more than we could do. <laughs> well, the criticism just, just comes, comes with, with, with the territory. A Chicago Sun-Times columnist once said, a group of people surrounding Mr. Jackson have profited from his civil justice involvement, and I think that's disturbing. Um, your thoughts on criticism like that? That's a compliment. How so? If they've not profited, then we're not done work. If, if we're trying to get black products on shelves and get money in black banks and black insurance companies. We're trying to get access to uh, garbage, blacks and pick up the garbage at, at stores to make money. Of course they make money. 
and the support organization wants to make the money. Of course, it's no. So it, it, it's it's kind of silly criticism. Of course, people that we support support us. That's how we stay in business. What do you remember from the first time meeting President Obama? His wife and my daughter Santita was classmates, and he and my son Je Jesse, classmates, uh, and. Uh, Tell me how smart he was. His dad, this, this guy's going someplace. So we, we, we sat around the house talking, talk. You said uh, his election to the presidency was the last lap of a 60-year race. Describe what you mean by that. Fifty-four, Jim Crow becomes illegal. Fifty-five, the Montgomery bus boycott. Sixty-four, the public accommodation bill. 65 the right to vote, 68 Dr. King kill. And really from 68 to 08, it's a 40 year run through the wilderness. So to go from slave ship to the White House, to go from the balcony in Memphis, the balcony of the White House was quite a journey. And so getting to the big house with the keys is the last step of that journey. There, there, there are fights beyond that that we now see because people can, once you, you don't have the keys forever, and life is a, is, is, is a dynamic, not static. So it was to get from being denied the right to vote to having an African-American president was a long and meaningful journey. What was the emotion of that night for you when he was elected? You know, it was, I wept because it was the moment and it was the memories. I looked up on the screen where we had been in 68, during the upheaval in Chicago, Democrat convention, right in front, in front of every magazine, he had won the big one. He had won the big one, you know. The poor people who made it happen were not there. They couldn't afford to come to Chicago. People who, who paid the price with their blood and who for many years didn't have the right to vote, they couldn't afford to be there. And, uh, I long for their presence. I wish Dr. King, Meg Evers could have been there just like about 15 seconds, just have seen the glory of their work. It was quite an emotional moment. Presidency. You've run twice for it. Um, why did you decide to run? I kind of got pushed into it. We were fighting to get Harold Washington elected. Thought we could win. Ted Kennedy and Mondale decided they were going to come here and campaign for Dale and Jane Byrne. We said, please don't come. This is a Democratic primary. We support you guys all the time. They said, we have to come. Dale and Byrne are our friends. We said, we must be chopped liver. <laughs> so I tried to get Maynard Jackson to run. He wouldn't do it. I tried to get Andy Young to run. He wouldn't do it. I raised somebody should run, at least in the primaries. And at some point, they begin to say, run, Jesse, run. And so as I showed I was serious and not just playing. I began to run and learn how to run. I believe it was the 88 election. You win 16 of 21 primaries and caucuses on Super Tuesday. Then you win Michigan. Um, how much of a chance at that point do you think you have to actually get elected? A great chance we didn't have the money. You know, we, we got 1,200 delegates with $19 million. <laughs> Most cost-efficient campaign ever. 
Um, in the remaining moments, I want to talk to you about Jesse Smollett. Um, your thoughts on that case? I don't know much about it, except to say that he, you version of what happened to him. He apparently, could, his lawyer convinced it, the, uh, the prosecutor. That's all I know. I know that uh, when he was in trouble, we reached out to him to offer him refuge and support, as we always do. The prosecution, I think, cited the letter that the push organization wrote um, when dropping the charges. Why decide to write the letter? One of the characteristics of justice is consistency and, and, and inequality. When Jefferson Sessions said he recused himself and his number two guy appointed Mueller, we accepted that. When uh, Kim Fox appointed her number two person, that was rejected. We didn't think that was fair to her. And when the prosecutor decided in his discretion to let him go, that was not illegal. It, it, happened, it happens all the time. And then I looked at the mayor and the, and, and the police chief trying to make points, running back with the New York, discrediting her. Why was it important to you to hold a rally supporting the prosecutor? Oh, the police determined they were going to march on, on uh, her. So I don't, want them, I don't want them to be alone. Sometimes silence is betrayal. To what extent do you think he did what he was accused of? I don't know. All, all I do know is that he faced the prosecutor, his lawyer, and he was dismissed. What is it? I'm out to know. How about the most satisfying moment from your career? Well, it was walking with him beside Dr. King. That was a very gratifying experience. Uh, bringing the Americans home from foreign jails. Those are very gratifying moments. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to my interview with Reverend Jesse Jackson. To see more of our time together, where I joined the Reverend for a workout to combat his Parkinson's, go to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger, and you can visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.